Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, as we continue our study through the letter, this beautiful New Testament letter of James. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones you can find in the rack in front of you. As we always say, if you don't own a Bible, take that one and keep it for yourself. Let that be our gift to you. We'll have the scriptures up on the screen, but there's just something about having your own copy of God's Word in front of you for you to see, for you to become familiar with where things are on the page. A lot of times I don't remember verse numbers or verse chapters, but I can remember where it is on the page. And that's, that's a help for us when we need to recall God's Word. Today we venture deep into the glorious, heavenly, divine logic of the Bible. Our text is James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I anticipate that we'll be in this text for at least a couple of weeks. This morning, I want to orient us to a few overarching truths. And then next week, we're going to deep dive into the middle of this text and think deeply about temptation and sin and the anatomy or the, the process of sin and how we can fight temptation and sin. But before we do that, I don't want us to miss the point, the theological point that I think James is very concerned that we get so that we understand, so that we have a right view of God because we cannot right, rightly fight the fight of the Christian life unless we have a right view of God. So this morning, I think this text that we're going to study in the coming weeks is some of the most important it is one of the most important parts in the New Testament in the letter of James, and it's one of the reasons why I, I think this letter is so good for us to work through. Let me read verses 12 through 18, and then we're going we're gonna to get into it. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." Amen. Well, let me pray. Lord, help us to understand this text. Help us to, to get a glimpse of the, the logic of this text. 
the truths that this text wants to root us in so that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, this passage is so instrumental for the Christian life. I know that there are a thousand distractions that are fighting against us this morning. Be gracious to us and and help remove them and help give us focus and clarity. Help me speak in a helpful way. For my friends in this room that are believers in Jesus, make this text an armory of spiritual power for them. And for my friends that are not yet trusting in Jesus, Lord, would you do what only you can do? Would you give life where there is death? And would you, by sovereign grace, would you call people from death to life this morning and in the coming Sundays as we stare at this beautiful truth? Do this all, Lord, for your glory for the good of your people, for the salvation of the lost, I pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want us to think about two truths that are, I think, overarching theological points that James wants us to know from this passage. But before we get to that, let's look at verse 12. I think verse 12 serves as a kind of bridge, almost a summary of what James has been saying up to this point that we've looked at in the past few weeks in verses 1 through 11. So look again at verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So as I just said, I think in verse 12, he's, it's a bridge from what he has just said to what he's about to say. And he's been very concerned. In fact, it starts off in verse 2. He's, he's commending us. Look up at verse 2. He says, count it a joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not, not if you meet them, but when you meet them. When there's a certainty to trial in the Christian life. And that he says, and right after that, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, that there's a purpose, a good and gracious purpose that God has in these trials that we all face. He says that it's it's going to test your faith, and the, the, the result of that testing is going to produce something in us, the, the fruit of steadfastness or endurance. And then he says in verse 4, let this fruit, the thing that comes as a result of this trial that you have been put under, somehow under the providence of God, let that fruit of steadfastness and endurance have its full effect. In other words, don't shortchange it. Don't, don't cut it off. Let, let it work in you so that you may be perfect and complete. I don't think that means sinless, but that we would be mature, that we would have roots that dig down deep, and that we would be complete in Christ, lacking nothing. And then he's, he's, he knows that this is difficult. So the next few block of verses, five through eight, talk about wisdom. We're going to need wisdom to live in this way. We're going to need discernment. All of us are not going to be able to perceive what's happening to us in our life rightly. We all have blind spots. That's why we call them blind spots, because we can't see them. 
And so he says, you're going to need wisdom, and we can come to God and ask for wisdom, and he doesn't, ch- he doesn't chasten us. He, he gives it to us generously without finding fault, and that we shouldn't be double-minded, going back and forth between trusting in ourselves and trusting in the Lord. So he commends us to ask God for wisdom. And then in verses 9 through 11, he, he picks out one particular trial that is common to all of us that's going to be a theme throughout James, this, this trial of how we handle our external situation, circumstances, particularly in verses 9 and 11, he looks at the difference between material possessions and the rich and the poor. And so he's saying this is a, a kind of common trial that we're going to, we are prone to put our hope in this life, in our stuff. And if we let the lowly brother, the rich brother, not, not give himself to the perishing pursuit of, of angst and, 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 and feeling like God is cheating him because he doesn't have a lot here in this life because he will be exalted with Christ. And let the rich brother not glory or boast in what he has in this world because it's going to burn up and be gone. So both the poor and the rich should put their trust in Christ, in all the riches that are ours in the gospel, which is a type of beauty that never perishes, unlike the, the things of this world. And so he, he concludes in verse 12 that this, this type of life that, that we all will face where we're, we're meeting trials, he concludes with a kind of summary statement that, that the person who, who remains steadfast, who endures, who reacts to the trials that inevitably come from this life in the way, not perfectly, but in the way, in this humble, Christ-centered, wisdom-seeking community of Christ-surrounded sort of way, that that person is blessed, and that when they stand this test, they will receive the crown of life, which God has prepared and promised for those who love him. And I just want us to notice before we move on to verse 13 and these two truths, notice the future orientation of the Bible. Notice how the Bible is always pointing us forward to the next life. Here in this text and in everywhere, he's saying that the motivation to live this way is because there's coming a day when we stand these tests, when we endure these trials, we will receive something, and this, it's this crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And clearly the context here is that day when we will stand before the Lord and we will enter into eternity, which awaits every person. There's this future orientation of the Bible, not only here, but it's all throughout the scriptures. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, don't lay up for yourself treasures here on earth where where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Romans 8 verse 18 says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, be revealed to us, then obviously is the clear implication. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 through 18 says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. I'm just giving you a sampling of the Bible's future orientation in accord with what James says here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Man, it's hard to read that sentence as just a proof text for another point without settling down and trying to preach a sermon on verse 3. I mean, He saved you not because of anything other. He caused you. You were dead. He caused you to be born again. He did it. He did it. To a living hope. And how did He do it? He didn't just snap His fingers. He sent God the Son to live a life in the flesh and then die to absorb his wrath and rise again in victory. So he brought you from death to life through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son. Verse 4, to an inheritance that's not these 80 years. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, not here, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, meaning that you've been saved by God through Jesus and you've been secured for eternity, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation that's in the future of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you see this? Do you see this future orientation that James is pointing us to here in verse 12 and the rest of the Bible is pointing us to that whatever we're going through now, although it will have fruit in this life, Ultimately, it's preparing us for the next. Now, here's the deal. It's easy to preach that on a Sunday. And I don't really think any of you disagree with that. In fact, that's the type of thing that a preacher in his study is looking and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we say amen. And thank, by the way, thank you for those of you that say amen. I'm, 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 I'm verbal. You can be verbal too. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I like a little you know, interaction. But it's easy to preach this, and it's harder to live this. Let's acknowledge, let's just acknowledge that there is a gap between what we see here in this truth about the future orientation of all things and the reality that we often feel Monday through Saturday. Amen? And let's just acknowledge, let's just acknowledge that there's a huge gap between what we know to be true and what we're actually experiencing, and this gap is disorienting, is it not? It's disorienting. Life is hard. Life is hard. And we can see this truth, and we can believe it, and we can wrap our arms around it. I believe this with all my heart. I do. I believe this. I believe I will stand before the Lord someday. And I will believe, and I believe that these 80 or 90 years will seem as nothing, nothing before the Lord. And I believe that the worst thing that I face and the worst thing that anybody in this room faces or any of God's children have ever faced in the history of time will pale in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed in them forever and ever. I believe that. But friends, but friends, 
<laughs> life, life can get so hard, can it not? And you can forget that in a moment. You can forget that in a moment. And we live in a culture, in our setting in 21st century America, that is not neutral. It is a battleground where the forces of the prince of the power of the air are doing everything they can to make you think that these 80 years are all that there is. Because if you believe that and you think that this difficulty that you're going through is all that there is, you are prone to believe a lie about the goodness of God. And that's what's going on here. James is lifting up our hearts and our minds to show us that what matters is then, ultimately, this is important, but it's leading us to then. And he's saying we're all going to face trials, stand fast, do this life together. Man, you can't. By the way, this is just another reason why you cannot live the Christian life alone. And it's another reason why church culture can't be silly and fake and only exterior. All of y'all are a wreck. Every one of you. Every single stinking one of y'all. And I'm a wreck. And the sooner that we just kind of admit that, the easier we make it for other people to deal with this truth. Amen? All right, let's keep going. Verse 13. Now we see this, this first truth that, that we're going to deep dive into in the coming weeks, but I just want to skim over it and give us some handlebars because there's a lie that we're tempted to believe, and James doesn't want us to believe, doesn't want us to believe it. Verse 13 through 15. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Now here's the interesting thing. In the original language that James wrote in, which is Greek, the word that he uses for trial and temptation is actually the same word. So he's saying that these trials, remember we've just made this point that these trials that we face are something that God is part of, he's behind using it somehow for our good to, prove, to, to mature us so that we would be complete in Christ. But now using the same word, he's saying, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay, we're going to, like I said several times already, we're going to deep dive into the process of sin in the, in, in, in the week to come. But here I want us to see this, this truth that I think we have to understand before we can really go deep into this truth next week. And it's this, truth number one, is that God does not tempt us and cannot be blamed for our sin. God does not tempt us. And cannot be blamed for our sin. But we've got to do a little bit of work to understand that because he's using the same, he's using the same word, word for trial and temptation here. 
And so if he has just said, if he's just made this point, and we, we see if we piece together the rest of the Bible that God is sovereign over all things and actually brings trials about for the good of his children, Romans 8, 28, he works all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1, 11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. But here it says that these trials, here we, we translate it temptations, these things are not brought about by God. The point is, is that we don't need to worry, we don't need to spend a lot of time distinguishing between trials and temptations as if we need to wonder whether the stress that we are under, is, is this a trial that God has intended for my good, or is this a temptation that the devil is bringing for my bad? The point I think that James is making is don't spend a lot of time trying to decipher between the two. Know that you live in a fallen world, and every trial that you face that is under the providence of God, can become a temptation depending on how you react to it. And the source of that temptation is not God tempting you, seeing if you're going to mess up, but the source of that temptation comes not from outside of us, but inside of us. That's what James is saying. He's saying that this temptation comes not because God is dangling a carrot, saying, click on this. Let's see if you will pass this test. But that comes from within us. God is not behind an intent to make you fall. I'm, I'm, don't let anybody say I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with evil. But each person, as they face the trials of this fallen world around them, but each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed Lured and enticed by what? Something outside of here? No, by his own desire. There's something inside of us. And then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So we're, again, we're going to deep dive in that. I know I keep saying that. But I want us to see now that, that, the, that the temptation, the enticement to fall, does not come from God it ultimately, according to James here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, comes from our own fallen nature. And why is this so important? Because, because of our fallen nature, we want, we are prone. We are expert, every single one of us, from the time we're born, we are expert blame shifters. We want to blame anybody but ourselves, even God. And let me show it to you from the Bible. Go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. The first two humans do this. And we are all descendants of these first two humans. These, this, is, this is mom and dad way, way back. Every one of us. Some of us are from, some of us, we're from different ethnicities, different origins. Some of us are from Brazil. Some of us are from California. Some of us are from, you know, Europe. Some of us are from Africa. Some of us are from Latin America. Your ethnicity is different because over the course of time, in God's providence, your ancestors happen to be closer or further away from the sun. And because of God's kindness, he just caused your skin to either darken or lighten so that you would thrive better in that environment. But we are all related. Every, every single one of us. 
Every single one of us. And, and, and we're talking, we're going to read back to our, this is our family history, mom and pop. Right here, Genesis 3. Blaming, blaming God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree. So there's a lie. Did God actually say? Man, that, just, just doubting God's word. We may eat of the, we may eat, and the woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. By the way, Adam was right there with her. He wasn't, wasn't, you know, building a cabin a mile away. He was right next to her being passive. Then the eyes of both were opened, verse 7, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man. Notice that. Men, we're responsible. But men, men and women are equal image bearers in God's design and creation. Any culture or any sort of subliminal sort of spirit in the church that wants to exalt men over women is a curse. It's a, it's a lie from hell. Men are not more important than women, and women are not more important than men. However, men are the head, and they are responsible. And God calls to the man. He says, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. In verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? As if God didn't know, right? And then look at verse 12. Blame shifting. The man said, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. I mean, poor Adam, you know, he... He went to bed one night and he woke up with a wife and he didn't even, I mean, it's like, what's this? Oh, it's a woman. And now he's blaming her, right? Friends, we're all sons and daughters of Adam. She did it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, she's following her head, Adam. She's blaming somebody else. The serpent deceived me and I ate. He did it. She did it. Somewhere out there. But James is saying here that each person is tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. We want to blame anybody but ourselves. Proverbs 19.3 says this. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. The Bible won't allow us to do that. James tells us that it is not possible for God to tempt you. He cannot be blamed for our sin. Now, I know some of you that are familiar with the Old Testament are maybe thinking, okay, Brad, well, what about that time 
What about that time? And this is where we get into the deep and divine and often inscrutable logic of the Bible. And you're thinking, what about that time where it says that God actually incited David to take a census of the people, which was sinful. God didn't want David to count the people, I guess probably for some spiritual pride reason, which is another, you know, I, I don't like to know the numbers of anything. I don't like, how many preachers get together? How many, how many people you got at your church? I, I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's a few. They're, they're there. I, just, I don't even want, oh, my heart is so prone to idolatry. And, and what about that time in the Old Testament when it seems like God incited David to actually sin? So let me read it to you. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. And again, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, meaning God, incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So God is inciting, according to 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, David to sin. But then in another account of this same incident in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, it says this, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So that's recounting 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24 are a narrative of the same event. What's going on here? And how do we mesh this with what James has said, that God tempts no one? I think what's happening is, what's, is 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 is the account of what happened. Satan incited David. And it's David's fault and it's Satan being the tempter. It's a kind of picture of exactly what happened in the garden. But all of this happens in a mysterious sort of way that we cannot understand where God is sovereign over it all without being culpable for sin, but still sovereign over it. So it's not like God is surprised by what's happening there. Oh my gosh, Satan tricked David. Now what do we do? He gives us, the Holy Spirit gives us this, this even larger, more mysterious, heavenly account of all of it being according to the providence of God who's over it all. And Satan is the pawn by which God uses to bring about his sovereign purposes. And yet in a way, and friends, this is where it's deep and inscrutable, and yet in a way where even though God is providentially in control of all things, and Satan is the one doing the inciting, and David is the one doing the sinning. God is over it all, but not culpable for it all. And how do those two things fit together? How do those two things fit together? Friends, that is above my pay grade. That, that is, right now, listen, we are butting up against the inscrutability we're butting up against the unknowable, glorious, all good, sovereign ways of God. And when we see these truths in Scripture, we have to come to a point where we realize His ways, according to Romans 8, or Romans 11, are past fully finding out. Friends, don't let that discourage you. Don't let that discourage you. If you could trace all of God's ways, then he wouldn't be God. He would be scrutable, but he's above us. Isaiah 55, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And rest in that, even as you run up against the, the end of this truth where it seems like 
These two things don't fit together. Friends, they do. They fit together in God's divine counsel. They may not fit together in our finite minds. And part of spiritual maturity is seeing that and resting in that and knowing that God is good and that he tempts no one. How do we piece these things together? I think that that Christians that have gone long before us have, have thought deeply about these things. Let me read to you. I just read this to you a couple weeks ago in Malachi. I think it bears reading again. This is the 1689, meaning the year of 1689, London Baptist Confession of Faith. And it's called the London Baptist Confession of Faith because it was written in London by a bunch of Puritan Baptists. And it was uh, basically a, a very close document to the Westminster Confession of Faith with a few, with a few changes for, to make it a more Baptist um, uh, uh, confession. And listen to chapter 5 on divine providence. Let me read to you a couple paragraphs out of this, this confession. And I think this is good work, and it's helpful. We've been studying this on Wednesday mornings in our men's study. It's just been so, so rich. He says, they say, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in his providence that his sovereign plan includes even the first fall and every other sinful action of angels and humans. Now, that, that, that's, that's, that's mysterious. That's saying that in, in a way that we cannot fully comprehend, God is sovereign over even Adam and Eve's fall, but yet, as we'll see in a second, even Adam and Eve's fall, the, the blame is for them and not us on, and not on God. God's provi- providence over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions. Well, now that's a sentence. In other ways, that's a lot. You can pack a lot into those words. I mean, in other words, we can't quite figure this out, but God is sovereign and we are culpable. Through a complex arrangement of methods, I put parenthetically understatement of the century, through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfect perfectly holy purpose, yet, yet, he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arises only from the creatures and not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous, he can neither originate nor approve of sin. Okay, listen, I, 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 I do not know how those two truths intersect on this side of eternity, but as sure as I'm standing here today, dear ones, I say that they do. And you might be thinking, why would God do this? Our Baptist forefathers went a little further and tried to help us with that in the next paragraph. They say, the perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on him, to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of his elect, 
happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. So, so that, again, there's mystery. We can't fully understand this. We can't fully explain this. But we can see it and we can stand on it and we can live from this. This is saying essentially what I think Genesis chapter 15 verse 20 is saying when Joseph is standing before his brothers who sold him into slavery and he's saying that all the things that happened as a result of your sin, God has used to bring about this point where I would be in this position of authority to be able to save and rescue my family from famine. And so he says, what you have meant for evil, God has turned around for good. So God is so sovereign and so good that he uses, there's always two things acting on temptations and sin. There is a devil that is meant to destroy us and an inner lust that is wanting to conceive with that outer temptation and bring us into ruin. But there's a sovereign God who is using evil for our good. Always. For his people. Friends, that's, that's the best that I can do to explain this deep truth to you. And friends, I, I want to say this with a lot of compassion because I know that, that many people in this room are dealing with severe consequences of their own sin and they're dealing with severe consequences of things that have been done to them. And, I, and in particular, I, want to, I'm just, I have in my mind people recently that I've talked to have that have gone through horrific things in their life that are things that have been done to them. And the Bible has a lot to say about justice and about vindication. But we, but friends, we have to see this truth here in James. James is pushing us not to blame the world around us, not to blame God, but to face our greatest problem. Not the sin outside of us, but the sin inside of us and he's telling us that God is good he doesn't tempt us and he can't be blamed for our sin hold on to that friends let's keep going truth number two let's read verses 16 through 18 and we'll we'll conclude do not be deceived my beloved brothers every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So how does this? It seems like maybe verses 13 through 15 are a kind of anatomy of the process of sin. And it seems like maybe in verse 16 through 18, he's talking about something else. Now he's just, he's kind of shifted his point and his thought to the goodness of God. But I think these things need to be read together in the same context, the same logic of James. Think about what he's saying. Let's zoom out. There's trials that we're all going to face. And they're preparing us for this future glory, this future life. And we're all, we have a choice on how to react to trials. Are we, are we going to be steadfast and endure them? Or are we going to allow this fallen nature in us that we have to continually slay with the word and with community and with the spirit that lives in us, this, this flesh that we have to mortify, are we going to allow our own fallen desires to mate with these exterior trials to form a temptation that's going to entice us and lead us into death? Or are we going to realize that, that, that God is good? 
He's not to be blamed, and there's some purpose that God has for me in this, and he's wanting on the heels of just telling us that God doesn't tempt us and isn't about evil, he's wanting to remind us now in verses 16 through 18, in case we forgot, don't be deceived, brothers. God is good. Everything good, everything that comes from God is good. You can trust that. He's good. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from God, who doesn't change. He's not moody. He doesn't wake up grumpy. He doesn't change. And even the chastising that he does for his children always has their good and his glory as the ultimate end. And he brings about this greatest good in our lives by the word of truth by which he saves us through his son, which brings us to the second truth. And then we'll end on this and dive deeper next week. God only gives good gifts to his children, only. Even the chastisement that we face, even the chastening, even the hardships, God only gives good gifts to his children. And we see this most clearly in Christ. Christ is, you know, we think, what I think James is saying is that none of us can claim that we're the victim. The only one that can claim that he was the victim, the true and righteous victim, is Christ. And Christ is the good gift, the perfect gift, the ultimate perfect gift that God has given to help us fight temptation, to save us from temptation, to save us from sin and the consequence of death. And God is so committed to our good, he's saying, he's so committed to our good in all of these temporal things that we're facing to produce in us this eternal weight of glory. He's so committed to our good that he's given the greatest good, Christ, to die for us, to save us from these things. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, where I think we see this truth displayed for us. Hebrews chapter 2. Let me read a few verses out of Hebrews and then we'll... We'll pray and conclude. The writer of Hebrews, we're not exactly sure who wrote Hebrews. Tyler and I were at this um, convention this past week, and this guy got up and preached a wonderful message on Hebrews. And Hebrews has been debated. The author of Hebrews has been debated throughout church history. We're not sure who it is. And, and some people think it's Paul. And this preacher just made me giggle. He says, you know what? I've been studying this and I'm just going to tell, I'm just going to settle it for you right now. Paul's the one that wrote Hebrews. Stop thinking about it. <laughs> it was just a funny little preacher thing to say. I, I don't know if he was right or not, but I thought it was pretty cute. J Hebrews 2 verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, this is God putting everything under subjection of Christ. He left nothing outside of his control. Think about that. At present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Well, that's a, that's a life paradigm verse. God's in control of everything. He's put it underneath the feet of Jesus, but it, we don't see it quite yet. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
In other words, the, the logic of Hebrews is saying that God has designed a world where it's fitting that he would bring his fallen people safely home from his wrath by sending Jesus, God the Son, in the flesh to suffer with them and through his suffering, through Jesus taking what we deserve, he would make us perfect. He would save us. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That means Jesus became a man and can identify with us. Verse 14. Skip down to verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Jesus knows what we face. We're going to get into this next week. I've said that ten times. So that means you have to come back next week. <laughs> Jesus himself partook of these same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, your sin has enslaved you. And even though God has freed you in your life here on earth, you're still tempted to crawl back into the prison cell. That's salvation and sanctification. But know this, that Jesus became one of you to march into that prison cell and take the penalty, the death penalty that you were awaiting to free you from that prison. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He knows what you're going through. And what is, why does he do this? To make propitiation, to make atonement, to die for, to absorb God's wrath and turn it into grace and favor, to make propitiation, to extinguish the consequences for our, our fallenness to give us the victory over temptation, to make propitiation, to take our sinful nature and give us his righteous nature, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, and we end on this. Since, therefore, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us sin with confidence, draw near to God, to the throne of, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Hebrews, I think, is expounding deeper on what we see here in verses 17 and 18. Don't be deceived, brothers. God is good. And the temptation that you are fighting, that you are facing, that drags you away at times, that you deserve death for, God has given you a good gift. He's not bringing you that sin and death. He's not bringing you that temptation. And you can fight it, Christian. You can fight it. And know that because this good God has given you every good and perfect gift, namely his son Jesus, who bore the penalty for your temptation and defanged it, removed it of its power, and guaranteed that you will ultimately be victorious over it in him. So stake that. 
Stake yourself to that. Live on that truth. Stand on that. And live from that place where God does not tempt us. He only gives us good. And we see this most clearly in Christ. Lord, help us to see this truth. Lord, just, Lord we're, all, we're all blame shifters. We're, we're blame shifters. We're like our first parents. By nature, we are children of Adam. And even those, those of us that have been made alive, that have been saved, that are trusting in Christ already, we are still prone. We're, we're, we're prone to believe lies about you. We're prone to think that somehow the things that we give ourselves to, that we can blame you for them. It's not true. And the way we know that's most true is because you give us only good things. You've given us the greatest good, Christ. And now whatever we face, we know it's a trial for our good to make us complete so that we will stand before you on that day receiving the crown of life. Lord, this is easy to see on a Sunday morning with a room full of brothers and sisters. It's hard to live on a Thursday. Help us with this, Lord. Help us with this. We're going we're gonna to leave this building in a moment. We're going we're gonna to be inundated with contrary narratives, with things that, that rail against this very truth. We're, we're going to be prone to wander, as the hymn says. Stamp this on us, Lord. Do something eternal. Do something significant. Tattoo this on our hearts and our minds. Let conversations happen after this last note is played on this servant service whereby Christians commit to live together in ways that we remind ourselves of this truth. Don't let this roll off of us like water off of a, the back of a duck. Lord, do something eternal. Do something significant that will get us through Thursday and back here on Sunday. Lord, do it, I pray. Do it. And for my friends that are in this room that don't know Jesus, that, Lord, help them, help them see that, 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 that this Christian life is not about just tips for better living. That there's an enemy that wants to mate with our fallen nature and drag us into death forever. And that our only hope is the good and perfect gift of the sacrifice of your son, and that we must put our hope, our allegiance, our faith in him and what he has done in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. We must put our trust in him. And when we do that, we give evidence that you have made us alive. We've, you've given us a new heart by grace. Lord, I pray that my friends in this room that came in not yet believing would do that, even now, would turn from themselves, turn from trusting in themselves, turn from the pursuit of tips on how to just merely live better and put their hope in Jesus, the good and only perfect gift. Lord, do all of this. Lord, help us live this life and bring us back next week to think deeply about fighting sin and temptation so that we might be perfect and complete on that day and that we would receive the crown of life. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.